continue our study in the Old Testament, and we are going through shadows of Golgotha. Um, yeah, we're this is sermon thirty-five, but actually it's thirty-six because I'm I'm not counting the introduction here. But yeah, thirty-six weeks, which is wonderful. And we have arrived to the book of Psalms. We're um, jumping through a lot of books now. So last week we spoke about uh, David and Goliath from 1 Samuel 17, right? And we spoke how the victory of David over Goliath was a picture of Jesus' victory over Satan. And obviously we skipped tons of books now from 1 Samuel to the book of Psalms. Growing up in Egypt, you have some really great preachers, man. I mean, I heard some of my, the best sermons ever that um, in my life. It was in Egypt, not even here in America. And a lot of the preachers back home use a lot of stories in, in the historical books. And um, they preach the gospel from it. Uh, but for me, just like I'm just on the edge of that. I, I, I can see what they're saying. I can see how some of the stories with the prophets can be a picture of the cross and Jesus dying for us. But I'd rather be conservative and uh, take the pictures in the Old Testament that we know for sure are pictures of um, uh, of the cross or be more certain, you know, leaning of the ti- on the side of is probably right than wrong. So that's why we're skipping a lot of uh, books because I'm trying again to pick up the passages that uh, a little bit more obvious. I feel personally more confident that these talk about the cross and uh, pictures and shadows of Golgotha in the Old Testament. Amen. So we arrived to the book of Psalms and we're going to stay in Psalms for a little bit, few weeks. Um, and today we're going to actually read Psalm 8. And... Um, Psalm 8 is one of these wonderful uh, psalms that David used to praise God. And even though we can only speak or focus on three, three or four verses in that psalm, I was just thinking it might be a good idea for all of us to stand and actually read that psalm all together out loud because it's such a wonderful praise song to the Lord. Amen? So let's do that. Let's all stand and let's read that psalm all together. Please make sure you have notes because we're going to go a lot of, through a lot of scriptures. Um, psalm 8. Here's what the psalmist said. Uh, we're reading actually from the New American Standard Bible. Um, and I'm doing that for a reason. So if you don't mind, uh, read it from the notes. Or you're going to see some differences a little bit with the NIV. But uh, do whatever you want. Uh, psalm 8, 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of the infants and nursing babes, you have established strength or praise because of your adversaries to make your enemies and the revengeful cease. Verse 3, when I consider, I just love that verse. When I consider your heaven, the works of your finger, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you make thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God or the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Isn't that lovely? Amen. You guys can be seated. It's a wonderful praise song, as you guys can tell. And um, David here is just looking at the creation and everything around him, and he's saying, "Wow, God, this is everything is so beautiful. You, you really are so majestic, and you can see your power and your majesty everywhere." And then, verse. Um, Verse 4, verse 3 and 4, he says, God, when I consider how great and grand everything else, what is man? We're, we're from dust, right? We're absolutely nothing. What, what is man that you think of him and the son of man? I like how the, I think the New King James put it, that you are mindful of him. Your mind, your, your thought process, everything you think about, it's just full of what is good for man. You know, this is just so powerful. And then David said, when he's continuing on the good thoughts that God has for man, in verse 5 he said, Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You have uh, made him to rule over all the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, which are all the sheep of the uh, all the sheep and the ox and all the birds and all the fish. And then he said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in the, all the earth. It seems like from verse 4 to 8, when, when David talking about how God, how, how God has made man and made him a little bit lower than God and has crowned him with glory and majesty and have made everything in subjection, under subjection to his feet, that David was actually reflecting on the story of creation. If you go back to Genesis 1, 26 to 27, here is what the scripture says in the very first chapter in the Bible. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over all the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground and then verse 27 and God created mankind in his own image uh, in the image of God he created man male and female he created them amen so it looks like David is reflecting on that. So when the Old Testament said, when, when in Genesis says that God has made man in his own image, that's how David describes it here that you have made him, you have made man a little bit lower than God. So God is the supreme creator and God made man in his own image to be kind of a, like a little God with a small g. I, I'm not claiming that we're divin divine or anything like that. But God has entrusted to us the authority to rule over all his creation right remember God is the master um, of over everything right but because we are masters in over the creations of God in that essence we are a little bit lower than God he's the boss and we're his worker but still we are superior than everything else that he has created amen so when David was saying that in verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, he say, you have made him a little bit lower than God. God, you made man a little bit lower than yourself, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You made him so majestic and so wonderful. And you have put him in charge of everything else that you have created. Amen? So, again, these four verses is a reflection of what the account of creation goes in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Now, let's stop a little bit at verse 5, because that's a, a hard verse a little bit. When David said, you have made him lower than God. 
If you have been reading from the NIV, it probably says lower than the angels, right? So, the word here, the Hebrew word, is actually Elohim, which we know it's a Hebrew word for God, right? So, the translation God is actually the most straightforward, most accurate, probably, translation of that verse. And it serves well the intentions of David. Because, again, he's reflecting on the story of creation. And he's saying that God has made man a little bit lower than him. God, right? Man was made lower than God, yet to still rule over all his creation, right? So if we understand that word Elohim to be a reference to God the creator, it actually serves very well. It's, it's straight with the direct translation of the Hebrew word and it does serve the meaning of pur the purposes and the meaning that David might have intended. There's nothing wrong with it, right? The tricky part of, of this, of that verse, is this. The Septuagint, which we talked about this so many times before, which is what? Which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament before Christ. When they translated that verse, they translated as, you have made, it, you have made man lower than angels. They did not translate it, you have made man lower than God. They translated, made man lower than angels. And he, they used the Greek word angelios, which is messenger or angel. Again, I think the translators of the Septuagint were just being modest in a way, and they're just thinking, oh yeah, God made man. So God, the hierarchy goes as this. God on top, then second level you have angels, then you have men, and then you have the whole creation. I think that was the process of that translators and even though it is not the most accurate translation based on the Hebrew text yet I can see how their thought process was this way and they ended up translating that word as angels right and to their defense to their defense we see in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms the word Elohim which is Actually, God, but it's a, a plural form. That the word God in Hebrews always comes in plural; doesn't come in singular ever. Um, so we see that the word God, Elohim, can be translated in in a reference to judges that God has appointed over His people. We read that in Psalm eighty-two, verse six, where because God is the ultimate judge. Therefore, because the small judges that he has appointed over his people kind of do the function, one of the functions of God being judges, therefore the Bible actually referred to them as gods or Elohim. And that's in verse 82, verse 6. Jesus quoted that verse later on in John 10, 34. So, I need you to follow me today. I need your brains, okay? So you need to be with me. The word Elohim is usually almost uh, all the time a reference to God Almighty with one or two exceptions of the Old Testament. Definitely the one in Psalm 82 and this one right here in Psalm 8 that is questionable if it should be translated to God or should be translated as angels. You guys follow me so far? Good? Okay, I need you with me. I need your brains. Make sure you're, I hope you had some coffee today. Otherwise, you're in trouble. Alright, now let's look at one last part before we uh, leave that psalm for, for now. If you flip back to verse 6, um, it says here, You have made him, man, to rule over all the works of your hand, and you have put all things under his feet. Question. When David said... In Psalm 8, that God has made, uh, God has put all things under his feet. What is David trying to refer to here? 
Obviously from the context he's trying to refer to all things but he's using the word all things to refer to all creation, right? He's saying the fish, the oxen, the, the livestock, the, the, the birds, all creation God has put under man's feet, right? That is the intention and the meanings that David has purposed here in Psalm 8. You guys follow me so far? Yeah. We're just making some notes, some highlights on, on Psalm 8 that I want all of us to be kind of familiar with um, moving forward. Keep all of that in the back of your mind. Amen? Well, one of you guys might stop me now. It's like, Kenny, this is such a great psalm. And thank you for clarifying all this good stuff about, you know, praising God and uh, that wonderful song that David sang to him. But I thought we're still talking about shadows of Golgotha, right? I thought we're talking about pictures of the cross in the Old Testament. There is nothing in that psalm that remotely seems to be related to the cross or the death of Christ, right? Right, yes. If you were David or anybody who lived in the time of David or any of the Jewish people before Jesus, you read that psalm and the cross will not come to your mind because quite frankly it's not there, right? But here is the tricky part. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament used that psalm and he referred to Christ. Amen? So that was in Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. But before we see the quote, how the author of Hebrews used that psalm, and how the author of Hebrews, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, applied that psalm to Christ, let me just pause for a second, give you a background of Hebrews, so you can know what's going on. Amen? We talked about this before, many times, that the book of Hebrews is always called the book of better. Something is better than something. And you can see that throughout the whole book. In the beginning, you see that Jesus is better than the prophets. And th that's the first few verses in chapter 1. Then, I think verse 6 or 7 in chapter 1 through chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, you see the argument that Jesus is better than the angels. And then Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the Old Testament high priest. And the list goes on and on and on. How the New Testament is far much better and how Jesus is far much better than the Old Testament pictures that we see about him in the Old Testament. Amen? Amen? Good? So that text right here that we're reading from in Hebrews chapter 2, in the context of the author of Hebrews trying to present his argument that Jesus is better and far more superior than all the angels. Right? That's the context where the author of Hebrews quoted that psalm from Psalm 8. Amen? So let's read that part. I can read it. Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. So this is the broader context in which the author of Hebrew, the passage in which the author of Hebrews referred to Psalm 8. It says here, uh, Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. He's arguing how Jesus is superior than the angels. And he said, we know that Jesus... The world to come will subject to him, right? But we do not hear ever anywhere that God will subject the world to come to angel. Concerning which we are speaking, the world to come. He's saying, you guys follow the, the, what he's saying? Saying, I'm going to be talking about that world to come, right? Verse 6. But one that testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little 
for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him uh, you have crowned him with glory and honor and you have appointed him over the works of your hand you have put all things under subjection to his feet so what is the context here the author of Hebrews is arguing that the world to come, not the present world, the world to come, will be subject under the feet of Jesus and not under the feet of any of the angels, right? And thus, Jesus is superior than all the angels, okay? So, in order to support that argument, he's quoting Psalm 8, the psalm that we just read. And he's quoting these particular three verses. Now, let's read his own sermon, the author of Hebrews' sermon on that psalm, amen? For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Remember what he said in the beginning, he's talking about the world too come right so he's saying so far we're talking about the world to come we still don't see all things are subjected to him but what we see in verse 9 but we do see him Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels namely Jesus question let's stop here when the author of Hebrews saying in verse 9 that Jesus was for a little while was made lower than the angels what precisely is the author of Hebrews talking about here He's talking about incarnation, right? When Jesus left his glory and he came down to live among us, right? So he's saying, we see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And then he said, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Now let's stop here for a second. When he said crowned with glory and honor, and honor in, in reference to Christ, what precisely he's talking about? He's talking about that exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God. Right? You guys follow that? Yes. You're with me? Yes. Do I, have I lost you already? Okay, buckle up. We're still, uh, still going to go through a lot. Alright. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Amen? Amen. So, focus with me. In, 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 in Psalm 8, what was David's intention when he wrote that psalm? When he was talking about man being made lower than the angels and everything is subject to under his feet. David's intention, his mind, he's talking about the account of creation, right? And how God made man in that manner to be lower than the angels, yet he's, he has dominion over all the creation of God, right? But the author of Hebrews took that psalm and he, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, said, yeah, it can be talking about creation, but David might be thinking about something else. He's talking about the incarnation and the exaltation of Christ. You guys follow me? Alright, and this is not uncommon when you study prophecy on the Old Testament. Sometimes there's prophecies in the Old Testament that we know that the purpose and the intention of the Old Testament is just to talk about an event that happening during that time. And the scripture, point blank, simple, face value, talks about the events that is surrounding the prophet. Yet, the Holy Spirit will have no problem in the New Testament to take these simple, plain words in the Old Testament that if you're a Jew and you read it, you say, oh, this is just talking about the, the, the circumstances that were surrounding the prophet. The Holy Spirit have no problem taking that very first words and say, correct, it didn't have a meaning back then, but there might be something deeper into this. Amen? You guys follow me so far? I'll give you a prime example. I put it in the footnote. In the book of Hosea, God is 
like talking to his people who have gone far away from him. And in Hosea 11.1, he said this. He said, um, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay, what is God talking about here in Hosea 11.1? He's talking about God using Moses to get the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, right? He's saying Israel was just a tiny nation. He was a little child. Yet at this point, he still was my son. And out of Egypt, I have called my son, which is the nation of Israel. If you're Hosea, during that time, anybody who reads has Hosea at that time, or anybody who listened to Hosea's sermon on Hosea 11.1, all what they're going to think about is what? God redeeming his son, which is the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Face value, nothing to spend here. But under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we see in the New Testament when, when Jesus, as a little baby, went to Egypt with his mom and dad, and then they came back to Jerusalem. I think it was Matthew who had no problem quoting that verse and applying it to Jesus, who went to Egypt as an infant and coming back to the land of Israel. And he said that the words of the prophet might be fulfilled out of Israel, I have called my son. You guys follow out of Egypt, I have called my son. You guys follow me? So even though the verse in the Old Testament might be not even talking about Jesus, yet the Holy Spirit says, yes, it, it didn't talk about Jesus, but there might be a depth or a different dimension into that verse that you need to look into. Amen? You follow me so far, right? Okay. Having said that, not... There's are, there are a lot of scripture in the Old Testament that you read it and you know this doesn't make sense to anybody of that time, right? Like Isaiah 53, for example, or Psalm 22. As a matter of fact, if you remember in the book of Acts chapter 8, when Philip the Evangelist went to meet the Ethiopian Enoch, uh, Enoch, or Enoch, and he was reading from Isaiah 53 that he was a lamb led to the slaughter, and somebody, uh, you know, like a sheep before it's cheered, he did not open his mouth. The Ethiopian Enoch asked Philip, what is he talking about? This is just so, uh, doesn't make any sense. We know there was nobody in the time of Isaiah that was led like a, a sheep to the slaughter. And who is that, that Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about himself? Because the, the prophecy is so about Christ that none of the contemporary of Isaiah will have the slightest clue what Isaiah is talking about. Do you guys follow me? You still with me? Yes. Do we need to stand up and sit down? Alright. So there's some prophecies in the Old Testament that we know you read it. The contemporary of the prophets will read it and they will have the, not have the slightest clue what this verse says or who is this verse talking about, right? But there are a lot of prophecies as well that even though it made perfect sense to the people, to the prophet himself who wrote it and the people around the prophet at that time, Yet, the Holy Spirit has gave himself the freedom, which he's got, he can do whatever he wants, to, to elaborate on that and put it in a different perspective and in a deeper dimension. Amen? Amen. You follow me so far? That's not good. You follow me so far? Do follow me. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right. Now, if you were trying to tell a Jew about Christ, 
a Jewish person about Jesus, I don't recommend you use these prophecies that, you know, the Holy Spirit is suggesting that have deeper meaning, right? Because remember, a, Jew, a Jewish person doesn't believe in the New Testament, so he will not buy your argument, right? So you need to use only the, the, the verses and the prophecies in the Old Testament that is clear, that they can read it and even will not make any sense about it because it can never be applied to anybody else except Christ. Amen? Wow. Okay. Amen. <laughs> it says, this is good. We still haven't even started yet. I need you to be with me. So. Yeah, because you're saying, I mean, let's say Isaiah is talking about the coming, the future. Mm -hmm. Then the Jews cannot stand on all. Exactly. Yeah, about the future. Right. What is yeah, it? you read Isaiah 53 to a Jewish person. He would like, right. you quit reading the New Testament to me. You know what I mean? This, yeah. They won't even know what is that about. Amen. So now. The author of Hebrews, I'm telling you again, now we're, let's wrap this up and bind you together. The author of Hebrews, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, took that psalm that was intended to talk about creation and how God positioned man in the process of creation. Now to apply that to the incarnation and the exaltation of Christ. Amen? But So let's look at the original meaning and the author of Hebrews meaning and just co compare that for a little bit. Alright, from, from the perspective of David when he wrote uh, Psalm 8, let's go back to that. From the perspective of David when he said, you have made him a little bit lower than God, you have crowned him with glory and honor by making everything subject under his feet, right? From David's perspective, God... God has crowned man with glory and honor by making him a little bit lower than God. You follow that? Verse 5. You have made him a little bit lower than God. How? By crowning him with glory and honor. So from the David's perspective, the crowning with glory and honor and making man lower than God, that's pretty much the exact same thing, right? Right? But the author of Hebrews kind of distinct them apart. And say when, when it says you have made him a little bit lower than the angels, he's talking about the incarnation of Christ. Amen? And when it says you have crowned him with glory and honor, he's talking about the exaltation of Christ. Jesus came, that's making him lower than the angels. And after he died, he ascended back to the right hand of God, and that's him crowned with glory and Honor. Do you see the distinction between the original text versus what the Holy Spirit is using the author of Hebrews to tell us? Amen? Number two, the second distinction. When David said, you have made him a little bit lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and majesty, you have made him to rule over everything, and you have put all things under his feet. These three phrases made him lower than God, crowned him with glory and honor, put everything under his feet. These three phrases refer to a past tense event. All these three happened when God made man, right? Because God made man and said, hey, you're a little bit lower than me. That's how you're crowned with glory and honor. Now I want you to rule over everything and everything is under your feet, right? So from David's perspective, these three phrases talk about an event that happened in the past during the creation of man, right? But from the author of Hebrews' perspective, he's using these three phrases to talk about three different events that happen in different times. 
Okay? So when the author of Hebrews in verse 9, actually let's go back and read that part. Ver verse 5, the very beginning, he says, For he did not subject to angel the world to come. That's something going to happen in the future, right? Concerning which we're talking about, right? So, in order to support the in the world to come, everything will be under the subjection to the feet of Christ. He quoted that psalm. And then if you read with me verse 8, uh, if you skip to the second paragraph, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Look at this. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So for the author of Hebrews, everything being subjected under the feet of Christ, that's a future event, right? This is not something happening now. Say so we don't see it happening yet now, but it's going to happen in the future. Amen? But what do we see now? What is present now is that Jesus is the one who in the past was made lower than the angels. We see him now crowned with glory and honor. Amen? And in the future, everything will subject under his feet. So even though David's intention to use the whole psalm in reference to the account of creation, the author of Hebrews broke it into three different events. One happened in the past, which is Jesus was made lower than the angels in incarnation. You guys follow me? And then a present event, which is what? Now Jesus being crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of God, right? And then a future event when the world to come and everything will be subject under his feet. Good? Yeah. Clear like mud? I tell you, I had so much fun studying this. <laughs> it's so good. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. Um, now, we're just contrasting the original meaning of the psalm versus how the Holy Spirit used it in the New Testament to mean and to reference to Christ. Amen? Let's just now focus on the word a little while that the, that the psalmists use. If you go back with me to Psalm 8 and read with me that part, verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than God. I mean, God in the original Hebrew, but angels according to the Greek, the Septuagint, which is the author of Hebrews quoted, by the way. He quoted the Septuagint. Anyways, um, so the Old Testament says you have made him a little lower than God. But let's see how the author of Hebrews quoting that verse in, in verse 7. You have made him what? For a little while lower than God. That's the difference, right? The Old Testament doesn't say for a little while. It just says you made him little, a little, little bit lesser than God, right? The author of Hebrews, again, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, had no problem inserting the phrase for a little while. Now, the Greek word can imply either. It can mean somebody who's lower in terms of status or in terms of time. The Greek word can carry either meaning, right? Like if you have a boss, so you're a little bit lower than him because you work for him. If you go like, uh, whatever, clean, whatever, the toilet for five minutes, then during that time you're even going lower than your actual job, but you're doing it for a temporary time, right? So the Greek word can carry both meaning. Can, they can carry the meaning in, in lower in status or lower in time. What is David's intention? Is David's intention to be lower in status or lower in time? 
status, right? When David wrote that psalm, he said, man was made lower than God in his status. But the author of Hebrews, again, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, had no problem emphasizing, yeah, David might have been status, but guess what? When it comes to Jesus, it's not the status, it is the time. He was made a little bit lower than the angel for just a little bit tiny time. To be precise, about 33 years or something like that during the time of his incarnation. Amen? And not only that, look at verse 9. Okay, let's actually look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Hebrews 2, 7, the quote of the Old Testament, You have made him lower than the angels for a little while. Or for a little while lower than the angels. Amen? Now look at the sermon or the notes that the author of Hebrews had in verse 9. For we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Do you see who took that phrase from the middle of the verse and he stuck it in the beginning of the verse, right? Right? Why? Because he's trying to emphasize that Jesus' humiliation to be lower than the angels was just temporary for the time of his incarnation. It was precisely for just a little period of time, for a little while. And he want to make sure that we understand that and that we're pretty clear about it. Amen? Yeah. Good so far? Okay. Yeah. Now let's go to verse 9. Verse 9 again is the sermon, the comments that the author of Hebrews made about Psalm 8. Amen? So we can read that together. It says, but we see now, let's actually read it together. Uh, let me find it. Okay, let's read it together. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for every... Amen. That Greek verse right here in Greek, it has four different clauses in it. Okay, four different parts. And it's really one of these hard, hard verses to translate. You really try to follow the thought of, of, of uh, the author of Hebrews here and see what precisely he's trying to tell us. But it seems like this. It seems like that the first clause, the first part in that verse, which is Jesus was made a little bit lower than the angels. It seems like this clause finds its fulfillment in the last part of that verse, which is is to taste by the grace of God death for each one of us. Amen? Yeah. And then the two middle classes is kind of like emphatic to emphasize the point that he's trying to, to also say. And he's saying that the second clause, because of the death, because of the suffering of death, that's the second clause, what happened? We see him crowned with glory and honor. You guys follow me? Yeah. Okay, so I put a diagram right here with arrows and stuff so you can uh, follow me. So it has four parts in it, okay? The first part is we, that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. That's the first clause that finds its fulfillment in to taste by the grace of God death for each one of us. Amen? And then the two in the middle, emphatic to emphasize his points, because of the suffering of death, he was made crowned with glory and honor. Amen? You follow me? And in the author of Hebrews' mind, the suffering of death, which is the third clause, and the fourth clause, which is 
actually, I'm sorry, the second one. The suffering of death and tasting death by the grace of God for each one is kind of like the exact same expression. He's talking about the same thing. Okay? So, he's just using the same word. He's, he's describing the same event with, the, with two different set of words, but he's talking about the exact same thing. In his mind, in his brain, the suffering of death is the exact same thing as tasting death by the grace of God for everyone. That's the construction of verse 9, which is the sermon or the notes that the author of Hebrews gave us on Psalm 8. You guys with me? You're already yawning. That's good. <laughs> Alright. Um, now, what is the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us here? He's trying to tell us one important point. Focus with me. This is very important. The precise interpretation of the author of Hebrews of Psalm 8 is this that the cross of Christ was the reason of incarnation and it was also the reason of exaltation you guys follow me? he's precisely telling us that Jesus was made a little bit lower than the angels. Why? Why did he came down? Why did he incarnate? Why he became human being like you and me? So that he can taste death by the grace of God for each one of us, right? So for in the author of Hebrews mindset, the reason of incarnation is the cross of Christ. Amen? But not only that, it's also the reason of exaltation. Because he said, because of the suffering of death, now we see him crowned with glory and honor. Amen? Yes. You guys follow me? Yes. Alright, so let's highlight these few phrases here and then we're all done. The cross is the reason of the incarnation. This is not foreign to the New Testament. Jesus said that himself many times. Look at this. Mark 10 45. For even the Son of Man came down not to be served but to serve. And why? Why did Jesus come down and incarnated? To give his life as ransom for many. In other words, Jesus said, The reason of me coming down and be a human being is that so I can go to the cross and die and give my life as a ransom for many. Amen? John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled. That's Jesus almost at the verge of the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus said the cross is really the purpose and the reason I'm coming to this hour is because I want to go to the cross. I want to die. The reason I even came down and incarnated and living here is because I want to go to the cross and die on your behalf and taste by the grace of God death for everyone. Amen? Yeah. Hebrews 9.26 Again, the author of Hebrews is not shying from claiming that over and over. For then he's comparing Christ to the Old Testament high priests who had to go into the, the Holy of Holies every year. How many times in one day? Two. You already forgot it. That's very good. I'm going to go back and preach it again. <laughs> two days. One day, one day, two times, the high priest will go back into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrificing. So he's sacrificing. So he's comparing Christ to that and he's saying, for then, if he's just like them, for then, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he was appeared once for all. When is that? In his incarnation, right? He appeared once and for all at the end of ages. Why? Why did he come down? Why did he become a human being to put away death once and for all by the sacrifice of himself? Amen? Yeah. 
Yeah. Hebrews 10, 9 to 11. Jesus now is quoting that psalm and applying it to himself. And he said, and he added, behold, Jesus saying, I have come. I have come to this world. I have incarnated. Why? To do your will. He's speaking to the Father and saying, the reason I came down as a human being, the reason I incarnated is to do your will. What is that will? It's not the peace of the world. It's not whatever. Here it is. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, by that well, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It was the will of God that Jesus will come to die on the cross once and for all for everyone. And then Jesus became a human being. And the very reason why he incarnated, he said, I have come to do your will, which is the cross. Amen. So the cross is the very reason why Jesus came down. He didn't come down to set up a very good moral examples for us. Amen? And even though his teaching was just unparalleled, yet Jesus did not come to teach us how to live in peace and harmony with each other. Amen? Satan sent some other people to do that. Amen? But Jesus has come so he can go to the cross, so he can die for us. That's the very reason he left his glory and came down. Amen? Amen. But not only that, it is not that the cross was the reason for Jesus' humiliation and his incarnation, but the cross was only also the reason of his exaltation. The author of Hebrews tells us plainly, right? Because of the suffering of death, we see him crowned with glory and honor. Amen? And Paul tend to agree with him. We spoke about this passage, we took five weeks talking about this. Philippians 2, 8-9. And being found in the appearance of man, Jesus, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on that cross. Look at the following word. What does it say? Therefore. I.e. because of he humbled himself, because of he went to the cross, because he obeyed God to that point. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Amen? Yes. Do you see the cross was the purpose and the very reason of Jesus to come down. And it's also the very reason for Jesus to be exalted back up to his place where he was before he came. Amen? Yeah. The cross is the reason for the incarnation, and the cross is the reason for the exaltation. Amen? Amen. And the expression is glory and splendor, how it comes about? So, the, yeah, thanks. The expression glory and splendor, we, we see him crowned with glory and splendor. If you remember, when we talked about the high priest, when he entered into the Holy of Holies, one day a year, remember what kind of cloth, cloth he was wearing? He was wearing the linen, right? The white linen. And we said that the high priest will be dressed with this fantastic cloth that has all kind of like gems and jewelry on him. And he has these 12 precious stones on his plate. And that when, when the Bible described in Exodus 28, his appearance in his, in his clothes, that, that the high priest clothes that he's wearing, it uses almost the exact same Greek description that the author of Hebrews described Jesus with here. When he says, he's clothed with glory and splendor, glory and honor. And the author of Hebrews used the exact same, almost equivalent, almost to the T, Greek expression to describe Jesus here. He might be saying that Jesus has been lifted up to be our high priest. And now he's lifted up to that position because of the suffering of death, right? There's an allusion to it. It might not be 100% true, but it can be. Amen? 
Now, let's say this, most of this stuff was difficult for you. I don't want you to worry about any of the stuff we said so far. That's not good, right? After I preach for half an hour, 45 minutes, say, don't worry about it. Here is what I need you to know. Amen? If you haven't gotten anything I was saying today, I don't want you to sweat it. But I want you to focus with me in the last two minutes. Amen? I want to just focus on that part. When the author of Hebrews say that Jesus incarnated, he came down, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. And why he did that? So he can taste death for how many people? Everyone. And how he did it? By the grace of God. He didn't do did it because you and I deserve it, right? He didn't do it because we deserve it, right? He didn't do it because we're good moral people. Hey, we're all living the suburbs, you know, we live a good moral life. We teach our kids right, you know, we're doing what we can. Therefore, we deserve to be saved. Or we should have a first shot at heaven. Isn't that the case? No. The only reason Jesus came down, the only reason Jesus went to the cross, not because you and I deserve anything, it's only because of the grace of God who wanted to provide a way for each and every one of us to escape the righteous judgment of God that we have earned because we have sinned against God. Amen? It's the grace. It's the love of God. The cross speaks only of grace and love, not of merit, because none of us deserve anything. Amen? But how many people did Jesus taste death for by the grace of God? Every one. Correct. All. Everyone. The author of Hebrews said that he might taste by the grace of God death for everyone. Think about that. This is just insane. Really insane. Have you ever like thought about like the Muslims in, in Europe or America who commit terrorist acts? Think about them for a second. These people live in third world country, probably be poor and beaten, probably miserable in their life. Um, and then England or France or America or whatever say, hey, come and live with us. We'll take you in just as you are and you can have access to our health care, you can have access to our education, and we don't care how you look like or what color is your skin. I mean, that's all in theory for the most part. And uh, still some, you know, racism still there. But we don't care about how you look like as long as you play hard and you play by the rules. You'll make it. You can even be one of the bosses among us one day if you just work hard and work by the rules. Amen? And then these people turn around and drive trucks into innocent crowds or bomb themselves and killing innocent people. I don't know about you, this is for me that the ultimate like climax of evil and selfishness. That somebody will be so mean-spirited and wicked and evil that he will turn around and do harm to the very people who've tried to help him out, right? This is pure evil. I don't know about you, I don't like it. Amen? But look what the Bible says that Jesus tasted death by the grace of God for everyone. That includes these people, right? The most wicked people. And it is not that Jesus tasted death for them. The Bible says that he was made lower than the angels for a little while so that he can taste death by the grace of God for them. Amen? In other words, Jesus on purpose, this is the crazy part, on purpose left his glory, left the sight of God and came down to be a human being like you and me to serve and be a slave and then go to that shameful, disgraceful, inhumane, torturous death on the 
the cross so he can show the love and the grace of God to these people. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I don't know, this is just blows my mind away. I think like a wife, for example, who will cheat on her husband. And she won't even be broken over it. She would leave her husband and kids and go with the man that she cheated with. I don't know about you, that just for me, so evil and wicked, right? That somebody will be so selfish to the point, so selfish to the point that they have no problem hurting the closest people they have, their own kids, because they're looking for their own interests and their own selfish desires. Amen? Amen. Ah, people like this will just make me mad, right? But look what the Bible say. Look what the Bible say, that Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while. Why? So he can go to the cross by the grace of God, die for that person. The most wicked of all, the most vicious of all, Jesus, still, not by chance, now he said, oh, might as well, while I'm here, let me die, try to do that. He purposefully left heaven, came down to be a human being, to go to the cross, to show the grace and the love of God to that person too. I mean the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And I'm not trying to single any sin in particular because we're all sinners. Amen? But I'm trying to show us the point here that today I don't care how many sins you have done. Amen? I don't care if you have done the most wicked sins of all, if you have mistreated everybody, if you have cheated everybody, if you have hurt anybody. I don't care how far you have gone away from God or how deep in the pit of sin and bondage you have been. Amen? Today Jesus loves you so much. And I don't mean that as a Christian cliche on a Sunday morning. Amen? I mean he truly loves you so much that he left his glory. He left heaven. He came down to earth on purpose so he, that he can go to the cross and by the grace of God die on be, in your behalf and bear the consequences of your sins. Amen? He did that so he can taste that by the grace of God death for everyone. Amen? If you're in the category of everyone, today is a good day for you. Amen? Let's come before God and thank Jesus for the cross. Let's all close our eyes and pray. The one who's so exalted, who's so magnificent, who's so lifted up, left his glory, came down to go to the cross yeah. so he can show you the grace and the love of God.